visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business in the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, supporting small and medium-sized businesses by creating greater freedom for them to succeed. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend, Verisage Institute colleague and co-host, Ed Kless. And on today's show, folks, we're going to do Best Business Books of 2015. So welcome, Ed. Hey, good to talk to you, Ron. Yeah, you too. Um, Interesting show last week from the uh, Verisage Symposium. That was great. Yes, that was a lot of fun to put that together to to re-listen to some of the things that we talked about and uh, hear hear from our our international f- folks. So it's always always good to to get a different perspective on things. And I think that that room was just bulging with ideas and 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 great things. So we're we're happy to share that with you. And I hope hope the rest of you liked it as as much as we did. So absolutely. So, Ed, on this show, we decided to do best business books. I kind of call this Baker's Dozen, thanks to my name. So, I do a presentation of the top 13 business books like I've read in a year or of, of even all time. But we're going to focus today on probably the best book that we read in this year, uh, best business book that we've read. And, and in the last segment, we'll do some honorary mentions. Um, but So, I'll let you start. What is... What do you think so far? I know the year's not over yet, but what's, what's been the best <laughs> yeah. business book you've read this year? Uh, you know, it's, I guess it's possible that something could come in in the next two weeks. But I, I have to say, and this is one that you recommended to me. Of course, probably 90% of the books that I read are ones that you recommend to me. So, <laughs> and, and truth be told, I get, I get asked a lot by people, hey, you, you know, you read an awful lot. And I, I probably read maybe two dozen books a year plus a lot of internet reading and stuff like that, but two dozen business books a year. Uh, but my friend, Mr. Baker over here, what do you, you're like f- somewhere between 50 and 100, depending upon the year, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. I've been running <laughs> over 100 the last couple of years, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's a machine, but, folks. He's a machine. Okay. <laughs> the, my book that I, that I picked is the one by Jeff Colvin, Humans are underrated. Uh, humans are underrated. What high achievers know that brilliant machines will never know. And this was just a fascinating read, yeah, uh, wasn't it? Yes, uh, well crafted, well constructed as a book. Just a pleasure to run through. I I found it to be a, a page turner because it, there was some lots and lots of interesting stories. But the basic premise of the book, for for those of you who didn't read it, because I know Ron did, is that look. In, in the next 20 or 30 years, most of what we humans do is going to be replaced by machines. You know, the, the whole idea that Watson, 
the IBM computer can win at Jeopardy and play chess uh, is is just unbelievable in terms of what will happen 20 or 30 years from now. I mean, if you think about it, 20 or 30 years from now, what occupies your pocket with your iPhone would have been, you know, a room full of equipment, right? Right. Sure. And I, I, you know, I think I, I've, I've seen stats on this. It's like, you know, if in 1985 you bought everything that your iPhone is capable of doing, and that doesn't necessarily include certain apps, but just what it's, kind of, what it's capable of doing out of the box, it, it would be like $150,000 or $200,000, today's dollars. Mm-hmm. Right? So if you then imagine that fast forward 30 years from now, and this is the whole you know, back to the future 30 years from now, well, whatever you hold in your pocket is probably going to be what Watson is today. And... That's that's pretty amazing, right? <laughs> that I, and it, it's it's mind-boggling. It, it is. I mean, he brought up the fact that when Watson won on Jeopardy, he was not connected to the internet. He had just had a bunch of stuff downloaded into him, like Wikipedia, Encyclopedia Britannica. I mean, all you know, but he was not live on the web. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Well, I love the line. This is one of my favorite lines in the book: "Is Watson is the only computer that's worth more used than new." <laughs> so true and and one of his points isn't it Ed, is that Moore's law is going to continue I mean the the fact that he gave the you know the Sony, Sony first transistor radio had five chips in it and Intel's latest chip has five billion or transistors mm-hmm. Y- mm-hmm. you know five versus five billion <laughs> and, and that's only going to get more and more and so the raw computing power is just going to do nothing but increase so Watson's capabilities are only going to grow. Right. And and don't forget Moore's law is exponential. Yes. <laughs> right? Yes. So, at least it's not logarithmic, but it's exponential. So just that idea is it's it, 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 again continuously mind-boggling, but they, yeah, they, cuz they've got Moore's law down to now I guess the predicted end of Moore's law because you'd have to get to the subatomic particle level. Mm. Mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. I believe now is 2060. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So, so that's that, when it that's when the gravy train ends assuming and this is of course a huge assumption assuming that you can only go to the the sub that you'd have to go to the subatomic particle particle to make it happen. Right. 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 You know, one of the things he talks about in the book that I also found fascinating is is we always like to say, oh, yeah, okay, this computer thing, blah, blah, blah. But they can't, you know, they're not good with emotions. And he says, well, yeah, that's AI, not true. AI <laughs> different. You know, a computer, a robot is going to be able to read your emotions because they can pick up on the facial combinations and facial expressions. And that's where our, that's one of the ways our emotions are highlighted. And sophisticated computers can pick up on that. No, they not only can they pick up on it, they can pick up on it better than we can. Be- better, right? Yeah. Because because the, the they can instantaneously recognize stuff that our eyes can't pick up. The, so the, the other thing I thought was fascinating about the way Jeff Colvin, you know, attacked this thesis was that he said. Figuring out what computers will never do is an exceedingly perilous route, right? Twenty years ago, we would have poo-pooed maybe a driverless car, right? 
But that's right. just the point. Uh, there, there are going to be driverless cars. And like he says, those are only going to get better as you and I become worse. So right. he, he thinks the better strategy, and I love this, Ed. He says the better strategy is to ask what are the activities that we humans will simply insist be performed by other humans, regardless of what computers can do. And that, that is the brilliant question that, that emerges from the book, right? Is, it is. Don't, don't, don't ask what computers won't be able to do. Ask what will we humans prefer that other humans do. And that is, I think, extraordinarily profound, right? Because I do, I do too. Yes, yes, they, these, these things will do it better. Computers will do it better, but we still won't want it. And, of course, I, I think he uses the example as Watson is already better at diagnosing cancer than a team of doctors, but we don't want to hear from Watson our <laughs> diagnosis of lymphoma. Right, right. right. <laughs> Except, Ed, in the book I'm going to talk about in, in the <laughs> third segment probably, I'm right. going to challenge that. I'm going to challenge that very notion, or at least the authors of this book, they challenge that. But we'll, we'll put that aside. We'll come back okay. to it. Yep. Now, okay, so now let me, get, let me talk about the, the main problem that I have with the book. Okay, good. And I, and I think you know what it is it's that six was it six letters seven letter word they use empathy empathy yeah, <laughs> he, used, yeah. he uses the word empathy and it makes me crazy because yeah. it's not empathy it's compassion is what mm-hmm. he's talking about and you know he tries to defend it and, and at one point even he, he says and i highlighted this in the book he says you know that that age-old human trait empathy i'm like okay well you haven't studied the word because empathy is only came that that word only emerged in the 1920s (laughs) right Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so so i'm not quite sure i I mean i guess they're trying to say that it's a characteristic that we humans have always had but i so much prefer the term compassion over empathy and, and 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 i had to I had to I had to to get past that because right. every you time had to I read it, yeah, I had to substitute yeah. it because every time I read it, it makes it makes me crazy. And I know it's a personal thing, and I know that there's going to be people who are listening to me and say, "Oh, Ed, just get over yourself." But, <laughs> but well, you know, I think one of the reasons, Ed, not not to defend Colvin, but I I I think I have a theory for why he he used the word in the context he did was he talked about anthropologists and he he quoted one that has a list of universal features that anthropologists exist in every society throughout history right. and the first one on the list is empathy yes but again you know and, and i think he even says it at a certain point he says but of course we can't really fully be empathetic because we would be driven crazy you'd be exhausted yes oh and, absolutely right and, yes, and of course and that, and that ultimately is my is my point yes right? absolutely is that the whole the whole because you know empathy is is for good or for bad most closely associated with the Bill Clinton thing, right? I'll feel your yes. pain, yeah, right. Yep. And what we don't want is we don't want leaders that actually feel our pain because then we just have leaders in pain too. <laughs> sure, sure, right? Yeah, and we talked about this in the context yeah. of doctors and and all right. of that. Although I have to tell you, there's some books I read this year that that, that challenge that, and that you know, like the Cleveland Clinic and even some books from the, on the Mayo Clinic, they talk about empathy, have to how they have to put empathy into their service standard and and I know it would absolutely drive you crazy. 
Yeah, because again, it's compassion. And all right, so the so what what? But so here's what they he describes at it. And I do like this. If you take this as the definition of what I call compassion rather than empathy, is he breaks it into two parts, right? Discerning the thoughts and feelings of others, right, and responding appropriately. And if we take that as the penultimate. You know those two things together as the penultimate human characteristic. Then that's where the whole point of this book is driven off. That we humans are underrated because, dang, we do not give ourselves enough credit. We are really good at that when we Mm -hmm. concentrate on it, or can be. We can be really good at it. Right. Yeah. No. It's really interesting that the things that will be left to humans, you know, like relationship building and and creativity, brainstorming, all of these different things that he talks about. I mean, there are certain things that we want humans to do, like parole decisions, or even even a judge in a jury trial, or or indeed jury. You know, I wouldn't want a jury box full of Watsons, right? I'd want a jury. Well, you know, so so I thought about that. So this is interesting that you bring that up because I wasn't going to talk about this, but but I here if I were if I were innocent, (laughs) if I were actually innocent and on trial, I think I'd want the computer. (laughs) <laughs> because of the facial expressions, yeah, yes. yeah, no, it's right. a good, yeah, it's a good point. If, uh, if I were guilty, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I want the humans because we can we can fake them out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I'm also thinking things like drone attacks, right? We, yeah, yeah, because yeah. there there are just certain decisions you want a human to have to agonize over, right? No, irrespective of how good computers be, there are. Correct. Absolutely correct, and 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 I and I think that that's his his absolutely fascinating point is, is that there's just just certain things that we are going to forever want humans to do with humans, and you know it's it's uh, I, I, I I can't, I can't I, I, there was nothing with that conclusion that I disagreed with. I said, yep, that makes complete sense to me. Right, and just before we go into our break, just to reiterate, folks, his 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 the great question from this book is: stop asking what a computer can't do. And start asking whether the activities that we humans will simply insist be performed by other humans, regardless of how good computers can do it. And I think that's really the key insight from from that book. At least that's what I got. No, absolutely. And we've already discussed that we, we want to create workshops around that concept because I think it's 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 an important one. Absolutely. So, folks, uh, we need to take a break here, but I'd like to remind you, you can check out the full show notes on every show at the Soul of Enterprise. You can also email me and Ed at asktsoe at verisage.com. And please go to uh, the iTunes and rate our show. That really helps us a lot. And now we want to hear from our sponsor, Leading Results. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Is your website just a brochure or is it your best salesperson? If your site is not the best lead generation tool you have, we should talk. We are leading results. We build websites and marketing programs that impact your bottom line. Using HubSpot or WordPress, we'll create a website and supporting marketing program that gets your business found, converts web visitors to leads, and provides clear tracking on what is and is not working. Learn about our team and approach to your success. Visit leadingresults.com slash TSOE to find out more. 
book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. That must mean it's December. <laughs> it is. It's that time of year again. Love that music. That's some great stuff. Yep. Yep. So we're up to your favorite business book of the year, Ron. And again, so you, you of the 100 plus business books that you read this year, this is number one, huh? This is number one. And Ed, I just finished it back in, in November. In fact, it was after the Verisage uh, Symposium that I read this book while I was on the road doing a big tour, speaking tour. And it's called The Future of the Professions by Richard Susskind and his son, Daniel Susskind. Now, Richard, I, I want to say he's a lawyer, but I'm not sure. But he's certainly a consultant to lawyers. He's a professor. The kid, Daniel, is an economics lecture at Oxford. So I think he may, he may be a PhD candidate or whatever. But the book absolutely, literally blew my mind. Now, Richard Susskind has written prior books, things like The End of Lawyers and all of that. So he's been kind of talking about this theme. But I think because his son being an economist, Dad, this book incredibly resonated with me. Mm. Because I think he brought an, an, an angle to it the way an economist would. And that's why it, it, it appealed to me far more than uh, prior Richard Susskind works that I've read or looked at. Um, so what they're basically saying is we are advancing into a post-professional society. This is very popular, Ron. <laughs> I, 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 I know, I, especially when you're somebody who works with the professions like we do, right? Um, yep. It's it's uh, it 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 sounds scary, but Ed, I think it's full of possibility. But you know, they do make an incredible case that the the professions, um, you know, will be replaced, dismantled, if you will. They're not going to work the way they did prior to the twentieth century. And I, I think it's a really compelling argument. You know, they say we'll not only have driverless cars in the future, but we'll have teacherless students, doctorless patients, lawyerless clients, consultantless businesses, <laughs> clergyless parishioners. <laughs> and and what's one of the things I really like it is, you know, they look at they're looking at all the professions, including clergy, including journalism, and. Uh, you know, uh, on top of lawyers, doctors, and, and accountants and auditors. Um, but, you know, this idea that we're entering a post-professional uh, society is very, very provocative statement, I think. And then they set out to basically try and prove that thesis. And just a few interesting facts here. More people signed up for Harvard's online course in one year 
than have attended the actual university in its 377 years of existence. Shake my head. I mean, <laughs> just... <laughs> three times as many disagreements every year amongst traders on eBay are resolved using online dispute resolution than there are lawsuits filed in the entire U.S. court system. <laughs> In 2014, Ed, 48 million people used online tax prep software rather than a tax professional. I think you were one of them. I, I was one of them. I, we've talked about this because it does a better job of interviewing me than it, the than previous CPAs that I've had. Patients like me had 300,000 people connect with others who share their condition. So this is, these are communities where you, you have a diagnosis, you go, you find other people with that diagnosis, you learn what they're doing, what, what their protocols are, what drugs they're taking, the side effects, treatments, all of that. What they're saying, Ed, is you know, we've talked about knowledge as a non-rival asset, right? It can be, more, uh, it can be in more than one place at a time. Mm -hmm. And be, when I give you knowledge, it doesn't diminish, right? You have it, now I still have it. Right. Well, knowledge... It, you know, can also be digitized, and that includes expertise and even tacit knowledge to some extent can be embedded in these communities of experience, which are basically the users. That would be like patients like me. They can also be embedded in uh, user communities. That would, or I'm sorry, uh, practitioner communities. That would be like CrowdMed. Right. This is where you can go post your symptoms and doctors will come in and diagnose it, it, it including, by the way, on that particular app, uh, laymen will diagnose it. Well, in some categories, the laymen are doing better diagnosis than than the, uh, the professional. And what they're saying is the grand bargain the society has made. They call it the grand bargain the right. society has made with professionals is they've given them a monopoly because they're the keepers of the knowledge that is crumbling. Because there's mm -hmm. other ways to access knowledge. No longer in the future, heck, I would say even now to some extent, are, are experts the, or professionals the only place where you can seek knowledge. You can get it in a lot of other places, including AI systems, including uh, outfits like Watson, right? And, mm -hmm. and uh, decision tree software and things like that. So as that happens, then the influence in the sphere of the professions will shrink. And they say this will take place in about two decades. Right. And that's what I was going to say. It, it, if I, and I'm not finished, completed reading the book. I'm, I'm about uh, halfway through. But, he, you know, they do say this is not going to happen and crumble overnight. And, and But one of the things they do talk about with regard to this grand bargain, as they call it, is that the, the challenge is, is what we would call as economists rent, rent the rent-seeking. Absolutely. Right? The, yep. the the fact that the that the professionals, uh, especially those that are already state sanctioned, are going to do their darndest to make sure that if, these the, these things cannot get or will are going to struggle getting in. But but like taxis and Uber, it's ultimately going to fail. It you know yeah I was just going to say if you think if you thought the taxis created a, a storm over over Uber and and the hotels. Mm -hmm. With Airbnb, you ain't seen nothing yet. Yeah. <laughs> you ruffle the feathers of a profession, you know, and there's going to be some hell to pay. Quite yeah. literally, they. You're right. They are not gonna. They are not gonna go down uh, without an enormous fight. But you know what? It kind of goes back to that line. Nobody can deny us our future. 
You know, mm-hmm. we, consumers are sovereign. But just just one more fascinating statistic, just to, and it kind of ties in with your book. You know, humans are underrated, and just how 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 perilous it is to try and predict what computers are going to do, and how much better they are at some things than humans. There's at the University of California, San Francisco. There's a robot staff pharmacy that completed over two million prescriptions in a year without any errors whatsoever. The average error in filling prescriptions, Ed, is one percent. That's 37 million prescriptions in the United States of America get filled in air by a live pharmacist. I always check it. I always check mine. I- <laughs> you have to. You got to. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know, even if you do, how do you know it's the right dosage or, or you know, I mean, but, you know, these computers do a much better job. The robots do a much better job. So these guys, I think, have put together a really good, they, I think they make their case really, really well. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, they they ask some they ask some profound questions too in the book, and 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 again, their focus is the professions. Um, but one of the points they make is not only are the professions themselves a human construct, right? I mean, we we put this together, <laughs> but so so is the system that might someday replace them. <laughs> that will yeah. be constructed by humans as well. So. You know, the bottom line is professions are a means to an end. They are not an end in and of themselves. And I think that's an, another key point. And that's probably what I really liked about the book because it took on what it, what it means to be a profession. And I've been thinking for a long time that the, the distinction or the, you know, the labeling of a group of people a profession is, is less meaningful. I mean, I'm not about to say that my airline or yours – is unprofessional. That's cr- I mean, and here yeah. they are with, with our lives in their hands. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, say what you want, but I have, I put more trust in my airline than I do a doctor because yep. <laughs> I'm on an airline more frequently. So what does that mean to be a profession? Yeah. I, I just think it's, it, 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 it's slipping. And, um, this book I think is really, really profound. Now they like Jeff Coben they they bring up the same point that what they're looking at okay what will we insist that humans do even after all this great technology and they give some concrete examples like switch off life support right for a relative mm-hmm. you wouldn't want watson making that decision putting down a household pet the custody ed in a in a divorce action mm-hmm. you wouldn't want a computer to do military drones and warfare you know in other words we want humans to agonize over these types of decisions and take responsibility for them. So it's kind of a more a, a morals and ethical way of looking at, you know, what what do we want humans to continue to do? Yeah. And it is amazing Ron, how the the two books that we we picked really come come to the same confluence of ideas on this and it's uh you know, I, I we, yes, we we have are are a little bit ahead and this is not to say that this stuff is going to fall apart tomorrow and that, you know, s- s- accountants lawyers are going to be out of out, out of work and marching in the streets in in 2016, right? That's not right. that's right. not what we're saying at all. Not but at all. what 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 I what I do think is is I I think that most people in those professions don't realize how close it is. Right? I, I agree. Um, and, and and the and an ex- the example that I'll give, and I know I've shared this with you, and maybe we should post this as part of our show notes, just as an example, is uh, one that that it, it, from journalism, right? I told you about the app that we use to track 
the scoring at my son's baseball game. He's 10. Oh, right? yeah. Yeah. Right? And, you know, in addition to keeping all of the, the stats, you know, the batting average and all that stuff, it does the spray charts and that you'd see on like ESPN. Now this is for 10-year-olds, right? But wait, it gets better. But wait, there's more. Um, it, it also, at the end of when, – once you submit the, the, the stat, statistics, writes a story about mm. the game. About the game. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And, 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 computers and it's are, not bad. I mean, yeah, you know, yeah, it ain't no, and, King Lardner or, you know, Studs Terkel, but, but it's pretty good. <laughs> one more, one more thing, Ed, before we take a break, I just want to slide this in here because back to your comment about, you know, empathy or compassion, what these guys say, cause they really do answer every single objection that they've heard about their thesis in the book. That's another thing. I really appreciate it. They attack their own thesis and then, and then try and answer it. And people say, well, we, you know, you'd never want Watson to deliver your your fatal diagnosis and they say well let's not let's let's not give the professionals that much credit they're not a very compassionate folk <laughs> some of them you know maybe i would rather have a robot deliver my because you know they say a lot of professionals are sobs and you know what they're right because if you look at why firms lose customers is because customers don't believe they care about them you know and and uh, they make a really strong argument that compassion in the professions is completely overrated Yep. No, nope, I agree. Well, Ron, so, that, that, thanks for sharing that book with us. It's a, it's it's it, another fascinating book, and we look forward to to having. Or, uh, we, should we release here that we're going to have have yes. them on? In uh, we're, uh, we're going to have the son on Daniel. Okay, not, Daniel's going to be on on the show in in January. So we're really really looking forward uh, to that. But coming coming up next, we have an interview with the Sage Small Business Person of the Year for Canada. And his name is David Cohen, and he is with a company called The Boomer Business Coach. So we'll be interviewing him in our next segment. So looking forward to that. But in the meantime, please go out and visit us at thesoulofenterprise.com. Uh, we certainly want you to keep those reviews coming on iTunes. As, they, as we've, we've discussed, those are like the currency for us. So the more reviews that you can write on, on iTunes, the better. Of course, we want you to buy our book and write the review of, of that as well on Amazon. So we really appreciate that. But right now, we're going to hear from our sponsor and sage partner, Azamba. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. We believe great companies can become even greater by challenging the status quo within their companies. The latest challenge to your status quo? The way people buy has changed. Buyers now control the majority of the front end of the sales process. Sellers must learn to facilitate a buying process, not conduct a sales process. Social buying signals are an opportunity for sales. Learn more. Go to quantacrm.com slash ABC to request a copy of the white paper, Always Be Closing, a guide to the new art of social selling. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? 
I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. from Mannheim Steamroller. Love those guys, Ron. Well, now we have with us the Boomer Business Coach, David Cohen. David, you are the winner of the Canadian Sage Small Business of the Year. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise. Thank you very much, Ed. I guess I guess because I am the Canadian winner, I have to say thank you very much, eh? <laughs> yes, that's a re- requirement. Yeah, and I should be <laughs> sipping a Tim Hortons coffee while I'm at it. <laughs> uh, we're more we're more LeBlatt's blue kind of guys, so we'll. You know, all right, we'll... good, good move. <laughs> <laughs> it is but again, afternoon after all. Yes, exactly, exactly. And you're East Coast, so it's even closer to five o'clock for you. So yeah, it's, uh, it's almost five o'clock <laughs> somewhere here. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, again, welcome to the show. And first, tell us a little bit about your organization. Well, it's the it's called the Boomer Business Coach, and um, that that, that the, the the Coles Note story is that was born out of sort of my own life journey, um, where about four years ago I uh, lost uh, uh, a job or was cut by the it was a government contract that I had, and the the contract got cut. Uh, a few weeks later, unfortunately, my mom of uh, eighty six passed away, um, not unexpectedly, and then a few days after that, my um, brother-in-law had a uh, had a heart attack and and survived thank god but it was just like that whole month kind of just rocked my world and i'm thinking man if this is going on for me as a as it's an early boomer i wonder if it's going on for other people if we're going through these you know big huge shifts and 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 changes not only in our work life but just in our lives in general and my research sort of pointed to the fact that, yes, that was, in fact, happening, and boomers were the fastest-growing segment going into business for themselves. And, and yeah, and then I just sort of did more research, and, and I am a business coach and facilitator and trainer. Um, you know, that was my business before, and I just morphed it into, I just shifted my name and shifted the positioning strategy to the boomer business coach, working with other boomers who are going through this sort of work-life balanced career transition thing. And, and you have a pretty interesting uh, coaching philosophy. I was reading on your website, and, and Ron and I were talking before the show that you use many of the words that resonate a lot with us. Uh, you may have uh, heard we, we, we're word guys. So uh, we, we, the, your first one, which is have a strong sense of – the 10 attributes – I'm sorry, 10 attributes of a successful coach is first, have a strong sense of self – 
value themselves intrinsically and are confident uh, and show up authentically. Authentically is a big word for both Ron and I. And uh, would be curious to think, what is what? how do you view authenticity? When you hear the word authentic, what does that mean to you? To me, it's just, just be yourself. You know, don't, don't be anything else or try to be anything else. I mean, just be real with, with, with people about where you're at and who you are, uh, what you're up to. And, you know, we all come with, um, you know, our, our, our fears and our, our worries and maybe we're not, are, are not good enough and, and those stories that, you know, are, are you know, that, that play in our minds. And it's just like, just, it's okay, you know, just be real and, and, we're all okay. We're all in this together trying to make the best of it and just, just be, be who you are. Don't be anything more or don't be anything less. Right. And, of course, honesty comes into play there as well. But what I, what I really like about the word authentic is I believe it even goes beyond honesty, right? Because there are plenty of consultants that I've encountered who are, are honest but not authentic, uh-huh. And in, in that, and here's an example: is with, they will they will not say what they actually see because they're concerned in some way about well, if I if I say this, will will the, the will the customer not appreciate what I what what I bring to the table? And they're concerned. Well, is that, what, would I lose the engagement or something like that? So that they, in in other words, it's more a, a more a. Uh, the, the a, a, not a lack of truthfulness, but a, a lack of volunteering information that they they are really feeling and seeing that they're not willing to say. Yeah, and, and but I, you know, my view is you're not doing anybody a service, especially your clients. And and I I think it's okay to you know agree to disagree. You know, if we're not serving our clients at the end of the day, then you know then we're not doing our jobs as coaches or as you know radio show hosts or. As vendors, retailers, I, I think we have to, you know, be real and, and just call it the way we see it, and and be open to the fact that, that you know there might not be agreement all all the time, and and that's okay, right? David, this is Ron, and I was also looking at your website, and I noticed that you have the business plan boot camp, and what yeah. intrigued me is you have a section called great service, and. It's probably one of the reasons Ed and I are doing this radio show or even got together is I started back in the mid-80s start, uh, studying great service companies. Back then, you know, it was Disney and Neiman Marcus and Nordstrom and all of that. And I, I just found it interesting. You mentioned Dr. Patty Lund. Yeah. And I, I wrote a book called The Firm of the Future with a colleague, Paul Dunn, who, who was from Australia, and he knew Patty. Yeah, and I just I was just wondering, did did you ever get a chance to meet Patty? I haven't, and I and you know I think the the distance kind of keeps us uh, apart. But um, I've read several articles about him, and uh, just uh, an incredible journey. And for your listeners, I don't know what they know, but you know he was on the brink of suicide, and you know he asked that question. You know, if, if my business can be you know make me money. Why can't it make me happy instead? And so right. he chose a very different path and, and chose to create a business that was about happiness and joy, not only for himself, but, you know, it was also for his customers. And I think if we're vibing at that level, if we're, we're having fun, we're enjoying what we're doing, then that's going to rub off on our customers. They're going to want a part of that. You know, we don't have to market and sell so hard. People are just going to want to, you know, be, have a part of that and, and get to, to work with us if we're, if we're in that sort of place. And I think it's really important for, for,
for business owners, especially the, the boomers who are going through, say, change and transition, to kind of embrace life as it is. You know, it's sometimes really hard if you're losing your job or if you're kind of wondering, well, what's next for me? You know, lead with a, a you know, from a place of passion and joy in, in, in what you do, and I think you'll, you'll start to uh, attract uh, your ideal customer. I think that's so true, and of course, that's what Patty did, didn't he? He got rid of a lot of customers that weren't taking his advice, and he he, yeah. he was frustrated with, and he set up this, didn't he have like a green apple on his door, and you had to know, you had to have a green apple card to be able to be a patient, because he had to be referred from another patient? Yeah, yeah, yeah. and, and you know, he changed story. the decor and the, the vibe, you know, inside the office, and yeah, he, he, he pulled out every stop. Yeah, right, yeah very good. And there's others too, like um, Mitchell Richards Clothing Store. I'm not sure if you know about them, but uh, they, they um, their, their philosophy is hug your customer, mm, and I just mm. love that, you know. And, and that's yeah. what they they attempt I, to do. I, I, you know, you mentioned Zappos and Pike's Fish Market and all of that, and I just, you know, I I think sir, good customer service is so important, and yet I just think it's so rare. Yeah. You know, that's why these examples stand out so much, because when we experience great customer service, we want more of it. So I was just thrilled to see that you're, that's an integral part of your, your teachings, because I think that's such an important and overlooked aspect of, of being in business is providing great customer service. Yeah, if you're a beacon for others, they're going to they're gonna want to come to you. You don't have to sell so hard or market so hard. They're, gonna, they're just going to want to gravitate and, and be around you. Right. The container and store I, does a good job, too, by the way. should add that in there. Yes, they do. And I, we, we've talked about them before because one of the things the CEO, he gives, he gives each person like 265 hours a year of education. And yeah, I just find that amazing. For the average company, you know, lucky if you get eight hours, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Yeah, Kip Kendall. Also, not, not the most, um, you know, like wildly, you know, crazy off-the-wall guy, but... Very, very astute businessman, and, and doing a great job on, on the customer service and 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 management uh, aspect of running a business. Right, and I also just wanted to ask you really quick about you've got your entrepreneurial circles and you know kind of a mastermind group you call it, and I just you know I, I, it made me think of Napoleon Hill, right? Think and Grow Rich. He talked about forming a mastermind. Is is that kind of the idea behind your exactly. uh, e circles? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, awesome. it's based on that concept. You know, Jack Canfield talks about it a lot in his books and in his work. And yeah, I think it's just good for it's a good way to fast track your success if you're working with your peers and and you're kind of facing the challenges that you face each month and moving through them faster. And your mastermind team can help you do that, so you're not, you know, the, the velocity in in which you face a challenge and overcome it and move forward and, and get traction uh, picks up a lot when you're working in a sort of a guided e-circle or mastermind team. David, this is Ed again. I, I do a, a, a podcast for Sage and we call it the Sage Thought Leadership Podcast, short form po- podcast. And I have an exit question that I ask on that podcast and I'm going to ask it here of you. And, and this is it. 
Uh, Get ready, David. <laughs> yeah, this is this is my like my all time favorite questions. By the way, it, 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 where we've talked about this before, Ron and I talk about interviewing people. This if I could only ask one question on an interview, like if I'm interviewing someone for a job, this would be the question. <laughs> so here it is: um, Who is a hero of yours, and why are they a hero? Oh, um, I'm going to say my brother-in-law, uh, the one I spoke about. And the reason he's a hero is he's just been so consistent. You know, he works, he's a doctor, a general practitioner, works hard every day, gives his all to his patients, and he's just a great family guy, you know, uh, and well-loved by his friends, his peers, his colleagues, and his family. And I think when you have those kind of relationships and you, can, you go to work every day and just kind of keep at it, you know, and, and you know, and, and be steady in what you do. Um, I think there's a real um, magic in that, and, and a beauty in that. And um, that's the that's that he would be my hero. Great, Th- thanks for that. And w- once again, David Cohen from the Boomer Business Coach and the yeah. Sage Small Business Person of the Year for Canada. We're congratulations and and thanks for being on the Soul of Enterprise. Really appreciate okay. it. Thanks a lot, Ron and Ed, and, and continued success and a very uh, beautiful um, holiday season to both of you and your listeners. Thank you All so right. much, David. All right, guys. Be well. All right. Well, we're up against our final break, and we want you to, to remind you, though, that you can visit our show notes and at thesoulofenterprise.com. Uh, you can use hashtag AskTSOE or at TSOE on Twitter to get a hold of us. But right now, we do want you to hear from my employer, Sage. <laughs> Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Four new employees. A 20% increase in revenue. Being one of the 9 million women business owners in the U.S. These are your proudest numbers, your landmarks of growth and success. Sage helps you achieve business milestones with cloud and software solutions that lead to deeper financial insights. Believe in your numbers. See what Sage can do for your business. Visit believeinyournumbers.com today. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. All right. Well, welcome back, everybody. I could listen to that whole song, Ed. That's just yeah. awesome. Uh, folks, we'd like to remind you, you can follow the show live at hashtag AskTSOE, and you can also email Ed or myself at AskTSOE at Verisage.com. We do receive your emails and reply to all of them, so really appreciate the folks that have taken the time to contact us. So, Ed, 
Give me an honorable mention since we, we decided to do our, our all-time favorite book of the year. So what were some that also made like your top five list or so? Well, and curiously, because we were just talking about this with David Cohen, but and I read this in January of this year, although uh, I think it has been out for um, a little bit longer than that, is uh, Kip Tindell's book, who the CEO of the Container Store, called Uncontainable. Oh, right. Okay. Yep. Yep. Real, really good book. And I, uh, I, I just love some of his his philosophies. Uh, David was alluding to it earlier, but you know, yes, they they, they spend. I think it's about twenty percent of an associate's time is spent in it, what what they call education mode, uh, and that's for a, a part time employee, um, and uh, or a team member as they would call call them. And uh, when asked why during an interview. Uh, and I love this. He said, because, ready, Ron? We sell a highly customizable, complex product that solves people's problems. Okay. Yeah. The container store sells the inside of closets. closets. That's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but to, Closet but, organizers. But, but, but to Kip Tyndall, it is a highly complex product that solves people's problems. Sure. And I just I just love that right the the idea that what what they what they sell goes beyond just the name on the door the container store and if you if you've ever shopped at a container store and I kid you not Ron I've I've got to have twenty five thousand dollars worth of container store stuff in my house I mean I, I'm not I'm not kidding we don't have a basement we don't have a basement here in Texas so so my entire garage is is lined with sure. their shelving units and we have closets that are lined with it and I mean it's it's it, it's it's really ridiculous it's kind of like a sickness I have to tell you but uh, but but when you go in there like they their people know not only the inventory of what's in the store but if you're over in the shelving unit and you're like well what are you going to put on these shelves they're like okay well what is it that you're trying to find here and they'll walk you across the completely other side of the store and say well these really go well together you know like the shelves Mm -hmm. over there and then these boxes and this is how they can fit them in and all this stuff and you're just like are you kidding me i mean they have they must have i don't know seven or eight thousand skus in a store at any time sure and and yet and yet almost all of the associates seem to have instantaneous recall on what's what's in there and that's because they spend 20% of their time in learning mode. Mm. I love it. Oh, that's great. Great book. What was the name of the book again? Uncontainable. Uncontainable. Yep. Okay, well, I've got one I've got to mention because I tell this story all the time as a, as a way to illustrate how slow professions are to change, but it's the Great Ulcer War. And oh, written, yeah. <laughs> written by William S. Hughes, who's a doctor, and he, he's basically profiling or telling the story of the two Australian doctors. They're from Perth, Australia, Dr. Barry Marshall, Dr. Reuben Warren, who basically had a theory back in the early 90s that ulcers were caused not by stress but by bacteria. And the entire medical community shunned these guys. They wouldn't let them speak at conferences. They wouldn't let their articles go into peer review. They said their sample sizes were too small because they were in a you know outback hospital and all that. I mean, they really was really kind of rude what they did to these guys. And these guys stuck with it, and they were persistent, and they just kept you know curing people's ulcers with their with their antibiotic regimen. And the only company that paid attention to them, Ed, which I thought was really interesting, was Procter & Gamble. But anyway, long story short, 
it took these guys from 1982, uh, which is when they came up with the theory, to 1996 to get the medical community to buy the fact that ulcers were not caused by stress. They were caused by bacteria. And, of course, they went on to win the 2005 Nobel Prize in Medicine for their <laughs> discovery. And But my here's my point. It, it, you know, it's 14 years they fought the so-called, quote-unquote, acid mafia wars. It took them 14 years in a scientific, empirically-based profession Right to change minds. How long is it going to take us to change minds in the you know the accounting legal profession and all of that? It, this stuff is measured in decades, literally. Yeah, and and that, and that is going to be a challenge. I mean, be, because let's face it, the C, CPAs and lawyers are not scientifically based, although they love to think they are. And even most businesses, this goes goes to our our theory that of what you know logical positivism in in business is just because we have data, we think we're scientific. Right. right. And and boy do we run from facts and evidence. <laughs> right. Right. So that's that going to be going to be interesting. All right. Well, let me give let me give you one more. Okay. Um actually I'm going to give you I just want because the one the one more I really want to give is a book we've already dealt with. I I can't not mention a beautiful question. A more beautiful yes, no, question. I can't book. I can't not mention it because it it, it was it was it it, it I, I almost had to put it first, but we already talked about it on another show. So I was like, all right, I'll just I'll, I'll do humans are underrated. But I just absolutely loved a more beautiful question as a book because it it it, it just resonated with me because this is what I do is is think about asking questions and the and the fact that this book has an index of questions. In yes. the back, it, it, it was it, it, that profound, and um, you know, I, I really resonated with it. And I think they did they did a, a fantastic job on a very difficult topic uh, of presenting it. So I, I, I just want to mention a more beautiful question again. And, and then I got to believe too, Warren you, Warren Berger Warren Berger Warren Berger. I got to believe uncommon sense and common nonsense would be high on your list too, since you read that this year, and we did interview Jules Goddard. It was that would have been next. <laughs> yep. Yep. So okay, I'll give you a, a couple. Well, you said two, so go ahead and take another. Well, no, one. I was going to guess give uncommon sense, common nonsense. So yeah. Oh, okay. Fine. Okay. Yeah, Sorry, yeah. I didn't mean yep. to steal your thunder. Uh, <laughs> uh, one, another book I really liked was Thirteen Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do, and I usually just you know shy away from listicle books, right? But I yeah. I like this one just because of the thirteen things. It's just a great reminder of things that you shouldn't be doing and, and, you know, things like don't, don't expect immediate results and, you know, don't, don't afraid to go against the common opinion and all that. And another book that I have to give honorable mention to is leadership BS by Jeffrey Pfeiffer. Yeah. And he just calls out the whole leadership industry and takes them to task. And, you know, we're, you and I have talked about, you know, there's no Hebrew word for leader. So Rabbi Daniel Lappin doesn't think it's needed. And it's, you know, leadership is a verb. It's not a noun. And and all of our issues with leadership, well, boy, does Jeff, does Pfeiffer take it to task. And I just thought he did a really, really good job with talking about how the leadership uh, industry is full of great stories and inspiring anecdotes. But when it comes to reality, they're awful. And, yeah. And, go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. No, I, yeah. So I just I, I found it a very very compelling argument. He, you know, even though I'll admit I was drawn to that argument anyway, but he really solidified it for me. 
it was beyond that for me when I read. I don't, you know, honestly, I don't know if I finished that because I think that was one that I was like three quarters away through, and you said you got to read this, and I, you yeah. know, I put it put it aside. So that happens to me a lot. But the thing that that was so good about that book is that it, it that it made me go, you know what? I probably do some of this stuff, and I got to be careful. <laughs> Yeah, we all do for sure. Absolutely. Using anecdotes or, or feel good stories or whatever. And just one more, Ed, because of the economic times and we've talked about, you know, the Great Recession and the housing bust and all that. But and we've talked about this book, uh, at least off air, The Forgotten Depression. 1921 right. by James Grant. Folks, it's a fantastic book because the government here did nothing in response to a very, very deep recession. Um, in fact, in some ways, it was worse than the early part of the Great Depression. And the government's response was nothing. And we came out of it relatively rapidly, and then and, and it led to the booming 20s. So just a fantastic historical look, um, which was I found really interesting. All right. Well, we're up against the end of the show, Ron. So what what do we got going on next week? Next week, because of the uh, truncated holiday uh, schedule, we're going to do Free Rider Friday. Awesome. So, yes, I'm really looking forward to that. So uh, I'll see you in 167 hours, Ed. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, supporting small and medium-sized businesses by creating greater freedom for them to succeed. Join us next week, folks, on Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern, and we'll be doing Free Rider Friday. In the meantime, visit us at thesoulofenterprise.com. We'll have full show notes posted and the books we mentioned and other resources. And also remember, you can contact Ed or myself at TSOE or ask TSOE at verisage.com. Thanks for listening, folks. Have a wonderful weekend, and we'll see you here next week. <laughs>